Welcome to Airwave. Airwave is a conversation hosted by me, Morgan Page, where music and technology converge to tell the stories behind the artists and the architects of creativity and technology. Radio is where I first discovered electronic music in the countryside of Vermont, and music and technology provided the path forward. Airwave is an exploration of how people make their art and how technology plays an essential role in the process. The show is largely conversational, but doesn't shy away from going deep and technical in the process. I remember playing EDC Los Angeles in 2010 and seeing, you know, 100,000 people congregating in downtown LA, seeing the Memorial Coliseum as the main stage. And that was the moment when I was just like, wow. Like that wasn't just comparable with what we had in Europe, it was better. And I was like, this is, this is, where, is, is where things are really happening. All right, welcome to Airwave. My name is Morgan Page. My next guest this week is Gareth Emery, a globally recognized trance music producer originally hailing from the UK. Uh, he's made some amazing music over the years and bootstrapped his career early on and evolving quite a bit over the years, both with his sound and his image. So we talk a lot about that. We talk about the state of EDM, where it's going next, what his creative process is like, what he uses in the studio for gear and software, and much, much more. So stay tuned. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. Take me back, uh, just give me a real brief bio, like take me back to early Emery. Um, I've been kind of doing music all of my life, um, which is hard when people say like, how did you learn how to do this? I played piano since I was four years old. There was just one at home, nobody else really played it. And I would just naturally go and, and, and mess around on the, on the, on the piano. Um, and I was good at playing by ear, even at like five or six years old. I've never been much of a sight reader, but I was great at hearing a song and playing it. So music kind of became my thing. I was shoved through all the classical training and stuff by my parents, which I never enjoyed, but I, but I kind of did it regardless. Then got into playing in bands, and, um, you know, when I was at college, I was playing in like a punk band at the same time as I was beginning to experiment making electronic music. And I wanted to be in music so much, I figured whichever of those got like a record deal first, that was where I was going. And um, yeah, I, th- I think I got my first record deal in electronic music in 2002, after years of sending out demos and, get- and getting no replies. And uh, gosh, yeah, 18, 18 years later, still, still in the game. That's crazy because you got a really early start. I think that's something I really noticed about your career. You got in early, you know, before the third wave. I think both of us got in well before the third wave when the EDM boomtown golden years. Yeah, and I, and I feel very grateful for that. And, and, you know, I think dance music, well, any music, right, always kind of comes in waves. So I missed the massive wave in, in Europe, which was like 98, 99, 2000. I was just on the tail end of that. So when I got into the scene, it was actually a pretty negative time. And a lot of people were saying the scene is dead. A lot of the old record labels were going bust at that point because they couldn't adjust to the internet. CD sales were stopping. And, um, 
you know, in like 2003, four, five, six, a lot of people I knew quit the industry. They just said, you know, we had a boom years in the late 90s and, that, and that's now over. But I think in most markets, if you hang on long enough, you're going to find the next boom years are going to come. And that obviously was North America in sort of 2009, 2010, all the way up to 2014, 2015. And um I think both of us were fortunate that we were already doing enough stuff by that point so that when things really went mental in North America and the Americans suddenly embraced electronic music in this crazy way, we were kind of already there and already had a foot in the door. Yeah, because you know, even despite the early raves going on here that Pasquale was doing, I guess that's, maybe that was the second wave. Uh, it wasn't, you know, hip hop was dominant and, you know, hip hop's obviously had, had a huge resurgence now, but uh, I think people... They think it's been like this forever, but there was a time where it, it was uncool to like electronic music. So and, uncool. Yeah. I mean, at least in the States. I don't know in, in the UK what it was like growing up, but that's, that's part of culture growing up. It was always somewhat cool in the UK. It came in way, it's had waves of being massive commercially and waves of going back to the underground. But you know, I remember I first came to Los Angeles in 2005. And I would play a trance club called Club Heaven in LA. And there was like 20, 30 people there. And I was paid like $500 for the show. Um, so like, you know, I barely covered the amount of money to get to get here and play. I liked LA though. And there was an energy about the place. So even before there was really any money to be made playing in the States, I would still come pretty often just because I, I liked touring here. And then I remember playing EDC Los Angeles in 2010 and yeah. seeing you know, a hundred thousand people congregating in downtown LA, seeing the Memorial Coliseum as the main stage. And that was the moment when I was just like, wow, like that wasn't just comparable with what we had in Europe. It was better. And I was like, wow. this is, this is where, is, is where things are really happening. Wow. But so you called it really early though. You came to LA 2005. I didn't realize that was such an early transition. Yeah, and I'd probably come, I probably came once in 2005, 2006, and then 2007, 8, 9, I started coming maybe like like two, three times a year. So... Um, oh, you hadn't moved over, you just visited. No, again. no, sorry, right. I've not moved. No, no, just, uh, I, I moved here right. in, uh, in January 2013. Right. Just because it got to the point where I was enjoying touring in America so much, I'd be traveling here um, three, like two or three times a month. So my life just became living on British Airways, fly yeah. out on a Thursday, play gigs Thursday, Friday, Saturday, fly, get the fly home on Sunday, arrive Monday morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll try and like run my record label and make some music and somehow like hold some semblance of a normal life. And then I'd kind of fly back for more American gigs. And yeah, it just became untenable pretty quickly. And it just made, made more sense to be here. Yeah. And so you wore a lot of different hats, a lot of different roles. You had a nightclub, Garuda, record label, and you're obviously deeply involved with all the event promotion, things like that. Uh, yeah. So walk me through a little of that. Like, what was it like running a nightclub? Because usually I feel like DJs are always, it's always church and state. Like the DJs are often separate from the, the chaos of the nightclub and just dip yeah. in and play the show. Yeah. I didn't really run it. I mean, that. A lot, although a lot of people thought I was more involved than I did. But what happened was we took our initial office for our record label Garuda and we were in the same building as uh, Sankey's, which at the time was one of the best clubs in the UK and it was eventually voted the, be the best club in the world. And, you know, I was like, well, this is a good opportunity to promote some nights. And most of the other hats I put on have been due to necessity, right? Like when no record label wanted to sign me, but I believed in my own work, I started my own. 
And this was at a period where I was starting to get recognition across the rest of the world, but not in the UK. Um, we're quite difficult about liking artists from the UK. Like we, like the, your home crowd in the UK is the last one to accept you. Wow. And I realized that most promoters in the UK were not really going to give me a shot because they remembered me as a 22 year old kid that like they would give like the, the crapper set of the night. And I realized if I was ever going to start progressing in the UK, I had to kind of do it myself and prove that I could do it. So yeah, we managed to persuade Sankey's, this nightclub to let us have their 200 capacity back room because this was a techno and deep house club. It was cool as anything. Like they did not want trance in there. Um, and then once they saw how many people came to our shows, they were like, right, we're going to move you up to the, to the big room. So yeah, we ran Garuda there um, every month or two months um, for, about, for about two or three years. And it was just the most crazy, intense experience because you know, we essentially worked in the club because our offices were like right above, right above the nightclub whilst also throwing parties there. And it was, uh, it was very intense, but it was uh, a, lot, a lot of fun. So you got to see some of the inner workings and and how the how it rolls out, you know, booking the artists. And so, you were you active in in as a promoter and bringing in artists, or is oh it more yeah, just- I was very yeah. We were involved in in all the bookings. I mean, to be honest, the first booking we made nearly did not happen because I was nervous about it. So we'd sold two hundred tickets and. Because you know, for a long time when I moved to Manchester, people said there's no trance music in Manchester. And I thought maybe this is one of these things that people had said it for a very long time and it had been accepted as being true, um, but it may not have actually been true. Um, there was simply no trance events doing our sort of music within like, you know, 100 miles of Manchester. So we threw a party, we sold it out, um, which, was, which was amazing. And then the, the, the owner of the nightclub, a guy called Dave Vincent, said, right, we need to go to the full room. We're doing 1,200 people on the next one, which was the capacity of the club. And he's like, and you need a headliner. So we looked, Ferry Corsten was available, but you know, his fee was, was, was pretty expensive. And I was like very much on the fence. I was like, listen, I, I don't want to risk this money on Ferry's fee. If we shit the bed and we don't sell the tickets, like I don't, it's more money than I've got to pay. You know, Ferry's a legend. I don't want to be this guy that like, like stiffed him on a fee. And Dave, the owner of the club, he's a very bullish character. He was like, listen, he goes, you don't know a fucking thing about being a promoter. He goes, but I do. I'm telling you now, the night with you and Ferry is a sellout. And he, he said, I'll go 50-50 on it with you. So that helped a little bit. And, and I was still unsure. And he goes, and you know what? He goes, if you bottle this, I might just book Ferry myself and, and see what happens. <laughs> I'm like, oh God, like what have I got into here? So I was like, you know what, then go on, then roll the dice, we'll book him. We booked him, the night sold out and we did shows there for the next three years. But yeah, I had, I had to be pushed into that one. Wow. So that definitely probably informed your your future events because you've done stuff with, you know, Sense with Insomniac and kind of created, you've really created your own brand and carved your own lane, it feels like. Yeah, well, I kind of had to, right? Because I, like, in the early years of my career, as I think it's the same with, like, most people when they first come up, you have hype. And hype is amazing. So, like, when I was, like, 22, 23, I'd made my first records. I found I could get covered in, like, the mix mags and stuff without really deserving it. But I was young and I was hype worthy. And it didn't really matter if I had any fans that I, I had that hype. Hype only lasts a few years. And, and after that, you kind of need to rely on your own ability to make music and your own ability to cultivate a fan base. So, you know, once I was in my late 20s, I no longer had the hype. So then I just realized if I wanted to do certain venues, I had to 
better myself. And unfortunately in electronic music, or maybe fortunately, promoters only really understand strength. Um, they're not going to go like, hey, we're going to give you a great slot at a festival just because we like you for the most part. They have to see that you can shift those tickets. So for me, it was often a means to an end. I was like, well, nobody else will give me a fucking chance. So, you know, but I, but I always back myself. I was like, you know, I'll take a chance on myself. And, and almost always those, those chances paid off and then led me to, you know, whatever it was that I, I previously couldn't, couldn't accomplish. Yeah. And I think it is hard with, with hype. It's like, I think even now it's, it's always a perpetual issue of EDC wants to book all the new artists that are going to draw, you know, have that, they have that velocity you know, yes. of, of this attraction and it's a temporary thing. And they're just making use of the sort of arbitrage of this attraction that's happening. Right. It's temporary. And what you realize is, cause there were years and I was like, Oh man, like I wish I had the hype because you know, there's always somebody who's like flavor of the moment that can jump ahead of people that have, that have been around a while. But then what you also realize is unless you can take being flavor of the moment <clears throat> and kind of parlay that into having like a, like a real fan base, the hype moves on quickly. If fans, like the fans that like follow the hype and like people very quickly, will like the next top guy the next year and you're kind of old news. So... Just like whilst, pop music. Yeah. yeah, like pop music. So whilst it's kind of tempting, <clears throat> you know, we've also, we've seen so many of those type of acts come and go over the years, whereas the likes of us, who probably had that hype in the beginning, but who've learned how to make it long-term, are still doing the business. So um, it, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I mean, did you find it was reinvention that did it or it was just more taking control of, of your business and putting out, changing the music? Was it, was it, it a combination of things? It was constant reinvention. I mean, I mean, I've always had like the core melodies and stuff that I write naturally. So that's always going to be there. But yeah, I think constant reinvention, finding new ways to do things and also just taking responsibility that the buck stops with me. And I, I probably the earlier parts of my career, I sort of expected my agents or my management to sort of like gift me this career. Whereas you're only really as good as what you're doing yourself. And when I stopped expecting to be given stuff because like, you know, I deserved it, which is complete nonsense and realized that the only way I'm going to get to, I don't know, have a headline slot at Ultra Music Festival is because I've done something that makes me justified. It became a lot easier. And you know, that, that was probably the most recent one, right? We like just silly example, ultra music festival was one festival that never really like saw anything about me that other people did. I never got like, Oh, never got much. They're the hardest, I think. Yeah. They're, they're, tough. they're, they're tough. I, I was always got shit offers. Like, uh, here's your offer, like playing for free and like a graveyard slot. So invariably I'd always, I'd always knock it back, but I did want to do a big show at ultra one day. And, um, so we had our laser face night, which we, we did at a bunch of big places across the country. And I was like, fuck it. I said, Ultra not going to book me. Let's do one in Miami. And, you know, again, people said, you're literally throwing a show in the same hours that Ultra come. Like that is absolute madness. But we went out and we did 3000 tickets during Ultra's opening hours, which, you know, was, 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 was a pretty amazing number. Um, and then the next year we booked a headline slot at Ultra. So sometimes like networking and most of the time, the networking and the kissing ass of the industry like prioritize is, is really like just nonsense. Just show that you're worth it. And, um, and nobody, nobody's going to believe it until you show them. Yeah. It, with your fans, like it seems like you have a super loyal ravenous fan base. What are you doing differently 
than other DJs, would you say that it's cultivating that? Like I see your posts, you have a lot of, you show vulnerability in your post and there's yeah. a lot of, it's a very honest, very real uh, kind of voice that you have. What do you, what do you think that you do differently to get them, the fans to hang on for year after year? I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's being honest. It's, it's, it's being vulnerable. It's, I think it's consistently making pretty decent music. I mean, I've probably, you know, there used to be days when we could make like one good track every few years and ride off the success of that. That's not the case anymore. So I think I've constantly put out de- like, like decent stuff. And I, I think the other thing, the honesty has served me really well. And, you know, one of the issues that artists like, in, and I'm like not entirely trans, but that's the genre I'm best associated with. A lot of artists really struggle because the fans want them to make this one narrow lane of, of, of trans music. And, and the moment they stray out of that, it's like seen as disloyal. Whereas for me, even though it's often been unpopular, I was like, listen, like I'm an artist, I'm evolving. My sound's going to change. I'm going to make different stuff. If you're along for that ride, great. And if you're not, don't get angry. The old music's there on Spotify. I'm not taking it away. Right. We can go back and rewind to like 2005 at any point. And even though that's been difficult at times and has definitely cost me fans, it's meant that the ones have stayed around, they feel like they've been on that journey. So when I'm like, here's my new body of work, here's the next evolution in what I'm doing. And you know, my latest album is, is more band-like than kind of anything I've done before. They're like, wow, we love this. We've been here for like the last three evolutions and, and, we're, and we're here for this one too. So I guess there's a kind of sense that like we're all like on the journey to, together in a way. Yeah, I feel like they belong to something. It's kind of tribal almost. Yeah, because they're the ones that have kind of, you know, supported me along along the road. So yeah, we we feel like we're sort of, I think we feel like we're in it together as opposed to like, you know, I am an artist and you're the fan that can like hands off, hands off. Right, the pedestal effect. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. So what is it with trance music that inspires this sort of narrow focus on artists wanting to kind of repeat themselves? Why trance? I think probably it's a genre that, you know, had a massive peak in the late 90s and has, has struggled a little bit for relevance since then. And I think trans fans have seen a lot of their favorite artists leave the genre to go and do stuff that they deem more commercial. And um, I, there's this, like, I, there's certain sections of the scene, and this includes DJs that promote this very narrow sound like for instance and i'm not knocking these guys but there's a brand uh pure trance and for them their whole ethos is there's one particular trance sound the pure trance and and um <laughs> and that's the true kind of sound of trance and anybody else is kind of a traitor to that true sound and by the way i know rich and tapio the guys who do that sound and it's been mega mega successful for them and i'm, I'm not going to knock anybody that's had great success with the brand but and all they were doing was captivate was was kind of you know capitalizing on sentiment that was was already there but i don't see it that way because for me part of the reason why the sound has stayed relevant for the best part of 20 years is because it has been something of a chameleon it's taken a lot of different journeys over the years there's been a lot of sounds that have come and influenced it be it hard trance like the techno trance of like sander van dorn like the progressive trance of like angina deep and for me these all form part of like a rich tap- tapestry and help the genre stay fresh so for me the diversity is kind of like the benefit rather than the drawback but yeah that's that's i i, I guess like other people just see it as like stop diluting our sound this is what we like like don't fuck with it yeah 
And, you know, like going back to your background a little bit. So you got into podcasts really early. I noticed 2006. 2006. I mean, I, that was the, one of the toughest years of my career. Um, that was the point where the hype had died and I hadn't learned how to really make good music. So essentially first three months of 2006, I did not have a single gig, not one professional engagement. I was thinking about giving up. I was looking for jobs to apply for. And I was like, shit, man, like what the, what the fuck, what the fuck do I do? Had a lot of time on my hands and I was kind of always been interested in new technology. So I started a podcast and yeah, that podcast lasted 11 years and I think wow. five, five or 600 episodes. Yeah. And you think that helped your career a lot? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And it helped in both ways, in two ways. Firstly, it helped because there was like core fans that, you know, just listened religiously and came to shows. That's the obvious way. But the non-obvious way that not everybody thinks about is often like the gatekeepers do need a reason to believe in your story. And for gatekeepers that like, be it bookers or record label guys that didn't know much about me, but needed an internal narrative to explain to themselves why I was big and why they should pay me X amount of money. Oh, Gareth Emery, he started that massive podcast. Yeah, he's the podcast guy. And you'd yeah. even get people like Sasha in interviews going, yeah, if you look at new technology, obviously Gareth Emery's done really well in the, in the podcast game. So it just became this thing that allowed me to kind of garner acceptance by the industry at large, which had eluded me up until that point. I remember when all these podcasts were launching, like uh, when Above and Beyond were early on it and Armin and yourself, it was kind of like there was trance podcast and then there was NPR, like on the charts. It was this really weird mix of a couple narrow worlds that were doing really well that embraced technology early on. I thought it was so funny. Like, Yeah, it was very wild. It was very wild. <laughs> west. Public radio. Yeah, it's very wild west. Like a lot of, I mean, trance has, has always been pretty early in terms of technology. You know, when you, when Naps the first died, there was an awful lot of trance music on there. Uh, not much house music because you know, a lot of the fan base of trance is guys who, who like computers. It's a bit of a nerdy genre. So, you know, we've all, the trance scene has always been pretty quick on stuff his, historically, which, and that's probably why, yeah, it's, it's both listened to and made by, by nerds for a large part of it. It is funny now because I think if you look at the charts, the, the music podcasts are much lower in it. People, they want more of the, the murder mysteries and the, eh, it's a little more of like a modern soap opera with what's, what's trending there, but it's uh, serial killer stories and how I built this business podcasts. Those are kind of dominating Joe Rogan. Well, that's the thing. And, and that's, and I stopped doing my podcast in 2017 just because I felt like it had served its time and I, you know, I could take that day a week and spend it doing, you know, stuff that was just more interesting for me. But, you know, we have to remember, like, back when I first started these podcasts, 2006, music on demand simply was not a thing. Um, you know, Spotify, I don't think had launched by then. If it had launched, it wasn't really something that people used a lot. So, like, your music consumption was either the standard radio or it was downloading albums from iTunes or buying physical C CDs. So to have m music that automatically downloaded to your phone each week that you could listen to in an on-demand setting, just from a technological standpoint, that was very unique and very exciting. Um, now, obviously, now we have this whole world of on-demand music because of the streaming economy, which for me makes podcasts like music podcasts like a little more redundant. But, right. you know, viewed from the lens of the time, like, gosh, it was, it was very exciting. I mean, you wouldn't have thought that there'd be a Joe Rogan Spotify deal for $100 million. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I remember starting to listen to the Spoken Word podcast maybe like four or five years ago. 
um, like I think it's actually he got me onto Tim Ferriss, and I sort of yeah. read his book, and, and then went on to like dis- discover his podcast. And um, it's really interesting to me seeing how the podcast genre had shifted from its early start in music. But, you know, like, like music will always find where the outlet is. You know, I, I, th- I think music is quite agnostic in, in in terms of the delivery method. But when it's almost like a river needs to find a way to run to the sea, like you know, at that point there was obviously a gap from demand music, so music flowed that way, and now that's being well serviced through like the Spotify channels. We don't need it, but yeah, the, a lot of great spoken word content out there in the in, in the podcast genre. There's so much good stuff. I'm just addicted. I love that you can multitask, and I try to do the, the trail running in LA, listen to podcasts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in this climate now, where you know forty thousand songs come out a day on Spotify, and yeah. the gatekeepers have shifted to the playlist curators. Yeah. Are you changing your strategy to deal with this? or just releasing music in a, in a similar fashion or what's, what's changed for you? I think you always need to pay heed to what the current strategy is and how the market is because distribution is important. I do think in music, we probably pay too much attention to the gatekeepers. Um, so I, I pay some attention to it, but not too much. And, and I think there's a lot of people out there, a lot of artists who pay so much attention to the Spotify economy, their only game, their only aim, is getting on the right side of the pl- of the powerful playlist curators over at Spotify and making their music as Spotify friendly as possible. Like making these like two and a half minute songs where the vocal starts straight away because that that is what Spotify want and that's what goes well on the playlist. And sure, does it work? Absolutely. If the playlist curators like you and pick up on your stuff a lot of streams can be sent your way but then when you look through those playlists not that many artists that do well on them have actually really substantial careers because if you're making music primarily for spotify playlists a lot of people are listening to it but they're passive listeners. People are listening to it in a shop because they put the Spotify Mint playlist on on the shop. It comes on in like a shuffle in the car. They don't even know who, who the artist is. So you'll get a lot of streams. You may not necessarily create a fan base though. So for me, I primarily make music for my own supporters and the people that really like what I do. That comes before everything else. And sure, like, will I make an edit a bit shorter to appease the Spotify playlist creators? Absolutely. Will I be friendly? I like the people over Spotify, so it's no hardship, but like I'll send them some early cuts and stuff and, and kind of stay cool with those guys. Because obviously I like to be in the playlist too. I just think it's short-sighted to make that the only goal of your stra- of your, of your artistic strategy. Because right. like long-term, long in five years from now, there'll be new gatekeepers. And in 10 years, there'll be new gatekeepers. It's always changing, right? So... It might be a panel of gatekeepers instead it of, could be a panel of gatekeepers. Austin Kramer running it, you know. Or. Yeah, it, it, it could be like purely algorithmic. Like who, who knows? So it's like you can either play the game where you constantly shift your... And by the way, there have always been gatekeepers. You know, maybe five years ago, it was Beatport. Ten years before that, it was the person that bought vinyl for the big European distributors and the people that bought vinyl in shops. So you can either constantly jump around trying to stay on the right side of whoever the current gatekeepers are or go you know what this is my fucking thing i'm going to build a fan base who are going to be with me regardless of the shifting sands of the music industry and um i that way is scarier 
It's more difficult. It sometimes goes against conven- conventional wisdom, but I think there's, there's a lot more longevity to it. And I think people forget that there's other avenues into streams than just the curated playlist. Like there's the release radar, there's the algorithm. There, they can generate actually more plays than just the curation. But I always hear yeah. this from record labels. They're like, oh, well, it's harder to get playlisting these days. Uh, you know, Armada talks about that. And yeah, how, yeah, you know, it, they have so many artists tough. too. Yeah, it's tough. There's a lot of people fighting for spaces. And, um, you know, like I love Austin Kramer, who's like the main guy at dance over, over at Spotify. Like listeners probably probably know a bit about him. If, if you're making dance music and trying to get in these playlists and you don't know the name Austin Kramer, go and Google it because you should. Because yeah. um, he is the most powerful person um, on the planet when it comes to this stuff. Um, but, you know, he's got a lot of music to try and uh, I- I- expose people to. And I-, I think they do a good job in exposing a wide range of stuff. But for me, the release radar and the radio, which are the algorithmic playlists, drive a lot more um, plays than the playlists do. And my most of my streams, because in Spotify for artists, you can see a breakdown of where your streams are coming from. Most of my streams come from listeners' own playlists and libraries. So somebody has heard a song of mine, they've gone, I like this, I'm going to save it, and then it comes up more often for them. That's probably where 70% of my streams are coming from. Right, and I, I could see it being a trap. If you make music for Mint or one of these specialized playlists, then that is, uh, you're changing your sound and the other algorithm's going to change. So it's going to expect you to make more of that. And then you're kind of painting yourself in a corner, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, I think there are people who are like, fortunately commercial in that their music that they already like to make just happens to be an excellent fit for Mint. I don't know, Duke DeMont, Jax Jones, Martin Solveig, like people like that. The music they want to make anyway is a good fit for Mint, so that's great. But I just think changing your core sound and, and what you believe in in order to kind of like, you know, score these goals. It's also like you, you're always you're always behind the times when, you, when you're chasing the current set of gatekeepers, right? You it, especially it, radio especially radio and it, it's kind of like you see so many people now so many artists who'll be going let's make a record like i don't know like loud luxury body or oh. let's make a record like medusa piece of piece of your heart because but the thing was those records were made like six to 12 months before they became commercially successful and the stuff that's going to be commercially successful in six to 12 months from now is being made in some studio and it does not sound like what the hits on the radio today are because it's always changing. So like if you follow the hits on the radio, you're always destined to be somewhat second rate because you're never really following what, what you, what you want to do yourself. And I feel like it's, it's rarefied air, like a very small group of people in LA and London and Nashville that are the Benny Blancos uh, you know, and the Max Martins that are crafting the hits. Like, it seems like it's a very elite at the upper, upper tier. Those people, they know ahead of, not, ahead of time enough what's going to pop. But to play that game, it seems very difficult. It doesn't seem that fun either to try and just make hits. No, it's miserable. Like, especially if you're trying, trying to follow, trying to follow what, what, what is currently popular. I, I think following your heart and going like, what is exciting music for me to make and like, you know, like a lot, some of the stuff I'm working on right now is is way more band style than anything I've done before. And like, I'm I'm not making it going, hey, let's make this a hit because like what I'm making is not popular on the radio right now. But like, if the sort of the shifting sands of the music industry change 
and the stuff I'm making does become a bit more in vogue, well, then I'm sort of well positioned there. And if it doesn't, I'm very proud of what I make because what I wanted to make anyway. So it's kind of a win-win on, yeah. on, on both levels. What's your studio setup like now? And with, tell me a little about your, your workflow and the gear you use. Yeah. Um, so for the door, uh, my, my main workstation is, is Cubase. I've just been on a Mac. I've just been using that for, gosh, yeah, probably like 14, 14 15 years. I mean, I use Ableton for bits and pieces as well. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty solid with that, but Cubase is, is my main one. Pretty much all in the box, primarily because for years I would be traveling so much. So I wanted to make sure I was making music on the same laptop in the studio that I took on the road. I, so in my old studio, I had a machine room with like cables running under the floor and it just been like my laptop on the other side. Um, I, so I literally, it would look like a full setup, but it's all power on my laptop. So the moment I go on tour, I can literally close the lid, take the laptop with me and, and nothing's changed. Um, probably because I'm not touring this year, I'm going to add a bit more hardware. Um, I've got really into the UAD stuff. Yeah. Um, which is infuriating because you, you, you can't take it with you. But I <laughs> randomly, I wanted a certain sort of reverb last year and like none of my current reverbs were doing it. So I got the, um, I think it's the LX480, so Lexicon emulation, which UAD make, and it just sounded ridiculously beautiful. So I've now been using that on everything, which is annoying because I have to have my UAD card plugged in. But yeah, essentially Cubase going into a UAD, um, pretty much everything else in the box. I mean, like you since like Omnisphere, Trillion, Silent, um, Ana 2, ANA 2 is a good one if, if, if people don't know it. Nothing that fancy, to be honest. And I, I always kind of tell people like, because a lot of people do say like, what's your studio setup like? And I'm, I think advice on how to make music and like strategies to be creative are very, very helpful. I don't know, you've done a lot of great work in, in that field. But when people want to know, like, like what exact plugins do you use? I'm like, listen, like, it's like when Stephen King was asked, like, what pencil he wrote with. Like, it's, it's not going to make that much difference. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to fixate on rituals that somebody has or, or yeah, the, the branding or the tools. Um, and do you have somebody, like, you still work with Ashley on stuff? Or do you, does somebody else yeah. mix and master? Or how does it work? Yeah, so I started using more engineers probably about um, 2014, 2015. Everything up to that point was, was entirely me. But you realize as you get older where your skill set is. And my skill set is writing melodies, writing music, arrangement. I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at putting together a song and working out how, how it needs to go. In terms of the technical level of production, the technical side of producing dance music, the sort of fine tuning of it, I don't enjoy that side that much and I can do it well enough. Um, like, like, I'm not like, you know, fucking, you know, Rob Swire. Um, right. But like, you know, I'm, I'm all right at it. But I also realized I was spending like an insane amount of time doing the engineering side. So Ashley is like a bit different to me. He's a fucking amazing engineer. Um, but is less down the road on like songwriting and stuff like that. So like he's helped me a lot on the engineering side. So often I will do a track. I'll I'll have the synths in place. I'll have the arrangement, the vocals in there, and I'll just send it over to him and say change nothing, but just make it sound make it make it sound bigger. So he's been super helpful. He doesn't do everything, but like he's done maybe half the tracks on 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 the new album. 
Um, there's certain things I engineer entirely myself because I enjoy it, like vocals. I don't let anybody else touch a vocal. That's, that's always right. me. Um, but yeah, like I, you just have to go, right? Like, is, is it the best use of my week to be engineering, you know, bass lines and, and kick drums when, you know, somebody that's more enthusiastic about engineering could probably do a better job in like, you know, a quarter of the time. And especially since they have fresh ears, like I can only hear the track so many times. To me, that scares the shit out of me on a track where I've heard it 500 times and I could be taking it backwards uh, and I need someone else to step in with fresh ears. I'm hiring ears. Yeah, yeah, that, that's part of it, which, which is also why like, I try and work very, very quickly. And if I'm doing a remix or I'm working with a vocal, um, I will make... I like I don't like to like to overly listen to a vocal before I start to produce it because I'll become too familiar with it. It needs to be fresh for me. You lose the but, drugs, as I say. Yeah, like, you, you lose the goosebumps. You lose the goosebumps, and I want to make so say I've like nowadays I write like pretty much all my own songs. But just say somebody else has sent me a top line, I'm putting a song around it. I want to make that demo in three hours or less, ideally one session while it's fresh. I want the entire thing arranged. I want to know where the vocal goes. I want like, you know, I want the riffs written. Um, any more than that, it, it, it gets difficult. Um, I, I really like to capitalize on that early, like you say, like, like the drugs when it's fresh. I always feel like it's like comedians with jokes. Like if you hear the punchline once, it's kind of expired at that point and you've got to, I know you've got to recultivate your interest in working on the project after you've heard it a million times. Yeah, exactly. Um, one, one of the things that's helped me a lot in terms of like producing songs. Um, like for me, I, I kind of see the process of making a song. I can divide it into three main areas, right? At least, at least for me, like, like one part is the composition, the writing, the songs, the writing, the melodies, like the composing. Second part is arranging, moving around the blocks, which bits go where, what's the structure. Um, and the third part is engineering, the mixing, the fine tuning, making things sound good. And I never do all three of those at the same time because that's a guaranteed recipe to get in the weeds and lost very quickly. So, you know, you, I'm sure yeah. you've had it. You start making a good song, but all of a sudden before you've got to the chorus or the riff, you've started like tuning a kick drum and bass line. You do that for three hours, then all of right. a sudden you've overheard the whole thing and it just goes in the bin. So the for me, I never... amazing, but no hook. <laughs> but it's amazing, but no hook. So I never do those things at the same time. And typically... I like to do the writing, like the writing and the arranging first and then come to the engineering later, whether it's me doing it or somebody else. So how is it different now? You said it was more of like a band process. Were you doing rough demos on your iPhone and then fleshing those out? How did it work? Yeah, the last album was like me writing songs like on a piano or guitar. So it like often I'd get a hook in my head. I might be out and about in the shops or whatever. So I just record it into my iPhone. Then I'd get back to the studio. I'd flesh those out. Um, wrote lyrics, which I'd never done before, which was, which was super fun. Um, and, uh, I worked with one other co-writer who was just helpful in kind of saying, listen, you could make that a bit punchier, you know, that lyrics a bit flabby. Let's, let's time that up. Just a guy in London who just, uh, called Anthony Galatis, who just very, very kind of, um, sort of hard nosed, experienced writer of, 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 of music and written thousands of songs. And, um, yeah, so I kind of wrote these songs in acoustic form and then decided how to make them electronic afterwards. Were you all in the same room together or was it remote collaboration? So it was about 50% in the same room, 50% remote. And whether it was same room or remote, it would usually start with me going, hey, 
here's my idea for a song. You know, sometimes I'll be like this, I've got a chorus, I haven't got a verse, or I've got the chorus and the verse, I don't have a, I don't have a pre. But we'd work really well in the same room. Um, and then once we were done, then I'd bring in Annabelle, who was kind of our vocalist over the whole album. She didn't write the song, but she sung on every song. So I also wanted it to have like the the band consistency right where like every song sounds the same vocalist sounds like it's from the same place so um once we had the songs finished then we would i'd bring her in to uh, to sing them nice yeah because i feel like when you get the the top lines that are shopped around it's so easy to let that top line kind of boss the song around and and then you end up sounding like a million different artists and then there's a million different writers on the track that you're splitting the track with and and yeah. then there's writers behind the writers and ghosts behind the ghosts yeah, I'm kind of done with like the shopped around top lines and I've, I've been lucky. I've got, I've had some wonderful ones o- over the years, but honestly, very, very rarely have I made a song with like, Hey, here's a top line we've written. Would you like this one of your electronic songs? Maybe it's happened once or twice, but almost always, even when I've used what I would call like an off the shelf top line, it wasn't meant to be a dance music song. Like, you know, my biggest song, a song called Concrete Angel, was a 105 BPM sort of acoustic, um, almost like like a movie type song. You know, the writers had no idea it was ever an electronic song and it was brought to me and somebody said, hey, this could be like an electronic music anthem. Um, so, and usually other songs I've had came through that way. I think these groups that are just, you know, these top liners that are just banging out like, you know, 10 top lines a week. And uh, it's the reason why like most vocals in dance music are not particularly interesting because they're just- It sounds like the same singer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're just made, they're almost just like, almost like made in a factory. And I get it. Like, like I know a lot of DJs have no interest in writing songs or, or, or writing vocals. So that's the only way it works for them. But um, for those of us that can make our own songs, I, I think we're kind of obliged to, to do that. And I think it's really weird now with, we run into some issues with Splice doing Splice vocals. So- you know, they've started their Splice Exchange thing. I think it's still in beta, but I had one song we were developing and we found out the vocals on 10 releases on Spotify on significant labels. 10 and releases? 10. And, and they were done, and some of them were a lot better than what I'd done. So, so we just scrapped the project. And said, how is, like, was the vocal on a sample CD or something? Like, how, how, where, did, where, where is the vocal from? You know, it's funny. Some people, sometimes people will bring a top line to me and then tell me later on, oh, this was Splice. Like, I thought it was a session that they had and they're, they'd be co-producers, so... Oh, golly, so it's Splice, so it, it's been on, like, sort of a public... Yeah, has lived out there on its own, and it's very faceless. There's something I don't like about it where it's this faceless vocalist who, who knows, there's no identity, and they don't know what song their voice is on. It's weird, like it... No, that, that's it, and it, it, it also, like, I, I want to... Even if I'm taking somebody else's top line, I want to know who it's from, and I want to know, like, where the feeling behind the song came from and i i'm very much opposed to this dance music outlook where it's like top lines and bottom lines there's almost this feeling that like the song and the music are just these interchangeable puzzle pieces like oh the top line doesn't fit that instrumental put the top line over another song whereas to me and this is maybe why i've been successful with vocal tracks like the song and the bit of music that go below it they should be inseparable. They should be completely complementary to each other. And, you know, there's, there are not many people that are good at doing that. You're one of them. You know, you've always been fantastic about putting a piece of music, you know, around a vocal to, to show it in its best light. So, you know, for me, 
now I'm writing those songs myself, it's kind of perfect. So I can kind of write the songs, they come from my own heart, and then I can place music around them in, in a way that the, the best does it justice. And it's less disposable. Because I, I love those sessions where people come and it's in person and you just say, cool, we're going to focus all day. I and mean, some people do the, the two sessions a day thing in LA, which is a little crazy, but where it's just like, we're going to focus on one thing. Like that's the most important productivity tip. Just do one thing. And there's nobody... There's no mystery writers that pop out of the woodwork. It's like, you know it because you started from, from start to finish, unless there was like somebody who, who wrote the lyrics ahead of time. From, from nothing, yeah. And there's, yeah, I mean, I've known people that have recorded three songs a day, you know, writers that do like hundreds of songs a year. And I think, you know, pick your own approach. And I, some people are just like, you know, throw as much shit at the wall and, and, and see what sticks. Whereas I've never been that way. I, I'd rather just like, find a few things I really like and then invest a lot of time into trying to, into, into trying to make them as special as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So with the touring stuff, you became associated with lasers and that was a big yeah. production. When did that whole start? Um, yeah, it was funny. So I, I took on a tour manager back in 2016, a guy called Anthony Garcia, who, um, was, uh, was my tour manager for, for three years. Good, good VJ. Um, and when he was on tour with me, he showed me he'd been um, these laser shows that he'd programmed. And they were just on his YouTube with like a couple of hundred viewers. But he'd done these amazing like synchronized laser shows. And everything was in time. And it, like the level of coordination was just bonkers. And I was like, how have you done this? I was like, because when we have lasers in my shows, they look shit. This is like fucking bright green lasers that come on at the most inopportune time and we have no control over them. I was like, how have you made these shows look so artistic and so great? And lasers were like a bit out of fashion at that point. And he was like, well, I just I said, I just run a time code. And, um, and I was like, okay, so could we theoretically do this live? And he said, yeah, you'd need to run like a time code sync from the CDJs. And he was like, there's some back-end development we need to do. Um, and it turned out nobody in the world was did a time-coded laser show at that point. And Anthony was a bit of a genius when it came to programming lasers. And I was like, well, you know, if I book a venue in six months, do you think you could put one together? And he was up for it. So we booked uh, Terminal 5 in New York. It's a nice venue. It's about 2,700 people. Um, I booked it six months ahead. I kind of gave him pretty much like a blank check and said, you know, whatever you need to do, like we're, we're going to support it. And we called the show Laserface. So that was the first one. And we did probably nine or 10 of those, always kind of like in the, you know, three to 10,000 people range, super successful. And uh, it, yeah, it, it kind of became a big, a big part of, of what we did. And um, when, and Anthony now is all like becoming an artist in, in his own right. So my new album was called The Lasers, because that is the next kind of the next, like laser face is pretty much done. The lasers is, is the next sort of iteration, which again, it's still going to be nuts lasers, but a bit more of like a band thing with the lasers being the band as, as opposed to DJing. But yeah. Is it LEDs and lasers or just laser focused? For the, whole thing? the first laser faces were literally just lasers. Uh, yeah, we just like have like, you know, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of laser beams because we'd use a shitload of beam bars making almost like a laser cage around the DJ booth. Um, but yeah, no, it, the early ones were just lasers. And then as we went on, um, we added some LED in. The, I was quite kind of nervous about LED at the start because the thing about lasers are they're quite delicate in the 
part of the reason why lasers often look shit is because they're being run with full house lights and like LEDs and stuff. Whereas when you get a venue dark enough, they look fucking exceptional. So that was like a, a big part of the challenge, just, just getting the rooms dark enough. But and the, and the other thing we did was Anthony would program a f- each song I wanted to play. He would have to do the programming in advance. So I would have a somewhat limited playlist because it was whatever he'd choreographed a laser show to in advance. And he'd spend, you know, three, four days on each song. But um, yeah, they were fun shows. They, they were nerve wracking, but they were fun. And the last one was going to be our ultra headline set. That was kind of going to be the, the finale of it. Wow. Is it ever dangerous with the beams? I mean, is it a new kind of laser that's safer with the, at a different operating a different frequency or something? I mean, what we do is much safe in the US is already much safer than what you'll get in most places in the world because the US has remarkably strict crowd scanning rules. So, you know, the lasers that go over your head, they're absolutely fine. Like, you don't even have any potential issues until you look in them. So, you know, we'd have like big, like 25 watt lasers, which, which are high powered, but they don't go anywhere near the crowd. They have a very narrow zone they're allowed to hit. And you spend a few hours before the show, like they have very precise software that says the lasers can only go in in these zones. So those are fine. We also would use crowd scanning lasers. Crowd scanning ones, by the name, are are lasers that you shoot in the crowd. They're a lot of hassle, but they're also the most fun because everyone loves like laser beams in their face. But those are, you have to power them down an awful lot and they shoot through like a glass pane, which kind of like reduces the power of, of the beams. And you start with a much lower power laser. So we'd always have our, our aerial lasers and our crowd scanning lasers. Now, if you go to raves in Australia, in Eastern Europe, they will simply take aerial lasers and we'll blast them into the crowd, which we wow. would never be allowed to do in the United States. Um, I mean, they, things are so hardcore here. We have to have a dedicated laser, laser safety officer on every show. One person whose sole job is to ensure that the lasers are set up in, in, in a safe way. So, you know, we're safe. Um, but, um, and then, you know, like you don't hear stories of people getting blinded in these other countries, right. but we, we, we take it very seriously. So there's one person who's not the operator that has to, is in charge of safety. Yeah, I mean, we'd have a laser crew of like, you know, close to 10 people. So like, yeah, Anthony is the the kind of head and the operator. And then you have like seven or eight techs and riggers whose jobs are to get it all set up and make sure there's enough smoke. And then there's one dedicated, it's LSO, laser safety officer. So that person's only job is making sure the team do their job right. It takes a good hour to do, to zone the lasers and make sure they're only sort of hitting these particular beams and stuff. And did you always do venues that were kind of, you know, like hard ticket, blank slate, where you had total control, or did you do, did you do that Red Rocks, the Gorge, more like more exotic venues? It was always hard. No, it was always hard ticket because um, it was a difficult enough show anyway. Um, we did it at a festival once. We did it at the Dream State Festival, which was um, in the um, the North Event Center, San Bernardino. So that was like a fifteen thousand person show. But just doing it at a festival with like other artists on the lineup, um, right? where we don't have complete control was tricky. And, um, you know, we had, we had, the show was an amazing time, but when I look back on the show, it was probably visually our weakest one just because there was so much that, that was out of our control. So yeah, you kind of like the more crazy shit you're doing, the more control you want to retain over the, over the process. You know, just plugging a USB in, uh, during a changeover. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, was, it, it was remarkable. Like luckily we had a really a great team of people. So 
you know, by the later shows, I could kind of like, I'd, I'd always go to the sound checks, but I could roll up, you know, knowing that everything is like re- remarkably well set up. And I get a good buzz doing those hard ticket shows. I, yeah. I really enjoy them. I mean, they're expensive and they're a little stressful. And obviously selling the tickets is challenging because like you haven't really got a promoter helping you. But man, when, when you get them right, the, the sense of accomplishment and we still get people now going, oh, Laserface Vancouver was like life changing. Yeah, people, people remember them for a long time. They're going to remember those more than the soft ticket shows, probably, than the usual, just another they club remember, night. They remember them more than the nightclubs. I mean, you, you yeah. want to do both, right? I'd like, I think I'd probably, the stress of doing hard tickets all the yeah. time but would probably have um, a negative effect on me. But yeah, I think you, like, like doing a bit of both is, uh, is a good combination. And I, I always felt like it was stressful doing the hard ticket tours because they're so expensive to bring, if you're doing a bus, a bus tour is just insane. Yeah. I mean, we brought 3D LED panels once and... Just when you see the books after a sold out tour, you come back in the red and you're like, wow, this is insane. Like, like a good yeah, tour yeah. that was successful. Uh, yeah. But, but just the, the staff and the crew and paying for everything. And, and it's like inevitably every artist has strong markets and weak markets and the routing to hit those markets. You're going to route through some weak markets if you're bringing a full stage setup. It's tricky. Well, yeah. On the bus tour, because you're sort of locked into where the bus can drive to on an overnight basis, you are going to get some stinkers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like we were, our early shows, you know, we burned money and um, our second show, we sold out the Bill Graham in San Francisco. It's the biggest solo, wow. eight and a half thousand tickets and we still lost money. Um, so as it went on, we were like, how do we still make this an amazing experience whilst also being able to turn a profit on these? And, and we got much, much better at that at the later shows. You know, we, we were able to structure our deals better and um, work out how to make the production still look epic whilst also be able to make, make money. And, uh, you know, when we could get back touring again, those, those lessons uh, would, have, would have been useful. Are lasers more expensive than other production elements? Um, no, I mean, it, it depends on sort of lasers you want. I mean, if you simply want a lot of effects, but you're not particularly bothered about precision programming, they're pretty cheap. And you can yeah. get these kind of like Chinese made lasers that they run on DMX rather than like the proper laser control systems. The proper system is, is a system called, um, Pangling. I think that's what, what Anthony uses, but you can get these ones that run on DMX and you or I could use them and they're cheap as shit. And like you stack up enough of them, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to look pretty decent. Like, oh, wow, that's like a lot of lasers. So no, you can do things cheaply because of the way Anthony programs and he is an absolute artist. We needed to have the absolute top of the line lasers. So for us, um, and I've, forget the brand of lasers, but they're, um, they're just known as the, the, the best ones that will, that will give his show the look they deserve. So yeah, they, they were expensive to us, but they can all, you can also do it on the cheap. That's more expertise and support crew probably. Well, yeah. I mean, whatever you need for lasers, you got to rig them. You got to find somewhere to put them up and, and you need, and you need some, some, somebody to operate them. So, yeah. um, yeah, like, like anything you can, you can do it on the cheap or you can spend much more than you need to. And we're always just trying to find like where that, uh, where the sweet spot is. Yeah. So the book is out now. Is it, is it kickstarting in that process? You got funded. It's, is that, it's is that? Kickstarting. 
Yeah, it got funded. It's funded like seven hundred percent what we what we originally planned. And I, I was like, you know what? If like I if I can't even raise five thousand dollars to release this thing, no fucker wants to read it. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's not out yet. It's um, the Kickstarter people will get theirs. I want to make sure they get theirs first before it's available on Amazon, and then we'll do more of like a general a general release on it. But it is it is on Kickstarter now. Yeah. Okay. And so for people listening in, uh, this book is it's called My Life in Lasers. And you kind of go into juicy behind the scenes stories. And because you're self-publishing, can you say anything you want or is there libel issues with that? Nah, pretty much anything I want. I mean, I, I <laughs> after, you know, 20 years in the music industry, I have, I have a reasonable uh, radar for what will get me in trouble. Um, and what is libel- libelous? I mean, obviously, it's not libel if it's true. So anything yeah. I could verify to be true was fine. And yeah, like I've, I've definitely strayed, clo- strayed. For, I've, I've I've said more juicy stuff than I could say if it was with a conventional publisher. Um, whilst also hopefully avoiding myself any obvious lawsuits. But you know, yeah, I mean, there's behind the scenes stuff in there as there will be because I've been in the industry for a long time. But there's also just like life lessons and I. How I started was on my new album. Every song was like about a time in my life, sometime in the past. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do some blog posts to kind of tell the stories of how these songs started out. And um, as I started writing these blog posts, they kind of expanded. And then before I knew it, I had like sort of nine stories and like a nearly seventy thousand words. Words. And I'm like, shit, man, that's a that's a fucking book. Let's just let's just release it as a book. That's the best way to start a book. You start with yeah. small pieces of content. It's, it's very natural, like, and it had to be, because if I'd ever said, like, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to release it, it then would have become, like, work, and it would have been much more difficult. But this was very much a process of, I didn't know whether it was ever going to come out. I didn't know whether I was just doing it, like, as a cathartic experience for me. I literally wrote the whole thing over about a month period where, like, my laptop was just glued to my hands. And, like, yeah, all of, all of a sudden it was like, I was like, shit, it's, it's, it's done. That's awesome. And I feel like it, you don't see it that often. I think some of the, maybe some of the super old school DJs have released some like how I made it as a DJ, but they didn't, it, maybe it wasn't an honest account uh, well, like this is. This feels more honest and vulnerable. Oh yeah, this is pretty fucking real. And the other thing is like, I, I didn't want it to be like a biography, right? Because like I've read some some DJ biographies where you know it's all done by a ghostwriter, which means it's well written, but not necessarily interesting because the way a, go- and a good friend of mine is, is uh, does a lot of ghostwriting and they do it via an interview. They sit down, they say, so tell me about your childhood. Where were you born? What were you like at school? Which is why a lot of ghostwritten biographies are kind of like, I was born at this point, my parents did this and then and, and they were at school. And I was like, I don't fucking care about any of that shit. Like, it's just not interesting. So for me, right. I started off telling the most interesting stories and then I expanded them. And, and yeah, like it does follow like a vaguely chronological order in terms of the timeline. But like, if it's not interesting or valuable to the story, it, it, it isn't in there. Right, because I think sometimes biography can be interesting to yourself as, a, as, as somebody creating the content. It's, it's hard to pull yourself out of it and, and have that objective point of view sometimes. Yeah, I, I basically just like looked at it on the basis of like, I imagine myself down the pub telling the story, these stories to people. And, and and to be honest, like I I do like to tell a good story, probably a bit too much, as some of my friends and family would would, would testify. So, a lot of these stories, like stories of nearly being in plane crashes and you know, nearly bankrupting myself in the early years of 
EDM excesses and all, and all this stuff. I'd kind of told these stories enough times to know they were good stories. And yeah. I'd phone them by telling them to people in real life and seeing the bits where like they're wrapped and seeing the bits where their eyes glaze over. So, you know, there's definitely going to be some bits where I've gone down a rabbit hole and somebody's going to go, yeah, this is shit. But like, like for the most part, it's pretty entertaining. I know there's going to be good stories because of, you know, some of the series you developed, like the cunts. <laughs> it is pronounced yeah. that way, correct? Yeah. yeah it, 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 well, it's, 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 no, I'm shocked. Hey, how no, no. Oh my God. <laughs> no, totally no, that was, down a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was, I mean, we had to call it CVNT5 for the TV show, but I mean, that story is in there. The story of inventing a fictitious group and suddenly finding, you know, a year later we're being handed two and a half million dollars to, to make a TV show for Verizon. That was a wild fucking ride. So I've kind of told most of the, most of the story of that. And, um, you know, just stupid stories of partying too hard and, and doing, doing silly things. You know, I've done, I've done, I've done plenty of that and definitely like some more behind the scenes stuff from our industry. I've explained how things like billing work, which I think is a bit of a mystery to the, to the audience at large. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty real. I think, I think like director fan is massive for the future in terms of like, in terms of income. I mean, we've seen amazing results uh doing vinyls like director fans cds director fans on this last album it's, it's kind of crazy like our merch business which was like kind of like the ugly ugly stepchild of like the gareth emory business up until this year like probably like really made fuck all like has suddenly become like a this six-figure business because we've finally looked at it and really took time on it so that's been super exciting Live streams, like I, I never really did Twitch. I sort of went straight to like a pay-per-view model, which is, which was really, really interesting. And you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that you, you can make the same money you can from like a decent nights, a decent, you know, gig fee. It's, I don't think it's entirely, um, like, I don't think it's sustainable because like, you know, you only get to do it once. Whereas like with a decent tour, you can go and do it in like 20 different cities. Um, so yeah, for me, I'm like, I really enjoy the live streams right now. I'm kind of focused more on like merch products, director fans. And, um, I, I want to do some drive-ins, some California drive-ins. Um, I think those could be pretty interesting. Um, How are you making the merch exciting? Like, I think, cause in the past with dance music, it was hard because you, it wasn't like a band where you'd finish and sign, you know, a hat or a t-shirt at the merch booth afterwards. Like, how did you... Because it was—it's hard to move product at a show where it goes all night. But yeah, yeah. What do you do now? What, what's different now that's it's changed? Well, what really helped us was we um, first single from the new album was called "You'll Be Okay," and then the song was written like you know wasn't written this year; it was written last year. But it kind of became a bit of an anthem for people struggling to make sense of what is going on in 2020, and. Um, a bunch of people started using the hashtag will be okay. And I was like, oh, I fucking like that. So we started, we kind of got this offshoot line of merch that just said like, will be okay. And they became remarkably popular. T-shirts, um, sort of uh, sweatshirts, even like bandanas you can use as face masks. So I think just having that compelling message that made sense in 2020 made things very popular. And also like, cause we have got those hardcore fans, we were able to do like, you know, 500 signed CDs, which again, sold out in like a day or two, 250 signed vinyls, sold out, sold out really quick, quickly. Um, and I, I do think when people can't go to the live economy, there still is like a, a desire to support artists and a desire to buy stuff online. So I, I think, you know, for artists that are struggling right now, I think the merch is, uh, is, is the, the merch and kind of like director fan is, is something they should be looking at. 
feel like something physical in your hands just feels more real. It's not this ephemeral thing. Like that's the one thing I don't love with music is that it's invisible. You can't really touch it or smell it or see it. And you've got yeah. to have something that there's got to be some material good. I mean, we're selling invisible waveforms. Yeah. And I think that one thing that the music economy kind of like misses at the moment, which may in the future become powerful is that music fans are by definition collectors. There's always that like record collector DNA, which is in most music fans. And I, I think the fact that every piece of music on Spotify is essentially exactly the same, you know, your 30 seconds gets you a stream regardless of the length. Um, you know, the artist gets paid the same regardless of, 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 of who they are. I think at some point we will probably see a more nuanced model. I, I, wouldn't it be amazing if you could have this system where imagine you could, you know, um, release say 500 copies of a song and it, it actually costs five or $10 and people buy them. And then it unlocks that song to their Spotify account only. So there's only right. 500 people that can own that song, but then you could also have like a secondary marketplace where if I own one of 500 of this exclusive Morgan page song that nobody else owns, I can then sell ownership of that song in almost like a digital token to somebody else on yeah. Spotify. And I think if Spotify were to, to, at the moment, it's a mass, at the moment, the Spotify model is, you know, mass market. It's just getting as many people as possible. But that kind of like trading and aftermarket sort of marketplace model, I think could be incredibly helpful for smaller artists with dedicated fan bases if, if it ever got rolled out. What do you think of, Tomorrowland. Did you watch the stream? Did you I, watch it as a fan? I did not. No, I, I, I thought I read about the structure of it, and I, I thought it was a little disappointing that people that have bought tickets for the actual festival were not given free access to the stream. I, I think that so expensive to buy that oh, wow. ticket, and, and a lot of them have to travel. And I, I fucking love Tomorrowland. Like I, I, you know, we um, we're gonna do two shows in this year, and we will next year. I, I think a little bit of a faux pas in terms of like, you know, a lot of people spend so much money going to that festival because it's a wonderful festival. They probably should have got free access for the stream as, as, as opposed to a discount. But I didn't get a look at the stream. I imagine it would have been a great production quality knowing, uh, knowing the guys. Yeah, I just saw the details. It was a $10 million investment and I think they just recouped it according to some insider of, but it was interesting because they're, they're talking about how there was a revenue sharing model and that Performers would get their advance, but they get a, a percentage of people who had tuned into the stage while yes. they're on. Yes. Oh, that's kind of interesting. So it depends where people go in terms of how much money they get. Yeah, part of it. I mean, you get your guarantee, but and all the guarantees were much smaller, except for like the very top tier guys. And I think even the top tier guys probably got half of their usual fee. Yeah. yeah. I mean, see, for me in the streaming model, I, I don't... I don't see the need really to, and mate, I'm lucky because I've got a, like a fan base of where we can do a stream and, you know, thousands of people will pay for a ticket to attend, but I don't, I've not done any streams with like big brands. Uh, I haven't really joined in any of that stuff. So I wanted to just keep it to, to my own stuff. And I, I just think that, you know, again, if somebody was starting out in the world of streaming, why tie themselves to these big brands where there's like a gatekeeper that can decide whether you can be a part of it or not. Like there's really never been a better time to build your own business and kind of have that direct to fan economy. And it seems so strange that you have overlapping time slots. Like you have the pain in the ass of a festival schedule, but it's all pre-recorded <laughs> and you, you can go back and revisit it, but it's like, it's right. It's why not just uh, let the, yeah. And I know it's trying to recreate the physical experience, but it's like, why not just let the thing last like five days or something? Yeah. Uh, 
and not to and, copy uh, a festival exactly as it is. Right. Like if you have to go online, the idea is that you kind of like remove some of the weak points, right? Right. You try and like, yeah, obviously look, there's plenty of downside to streaming versus being live. So like you might as well take the areas where you can dial in some upside and, um, and, and, and use, and use those advantages. But yeah, and it's a fucking, it's a fucking tough business model to be honest. Yeah. And I, I, I think like I'm, I do feel fortunate that here in California have a good fan base here and drive-ins do look like they're going to be viable. So I think that's what we'll probably focus on for a little while. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think what is very clear without getting too much into the weeds of sort of COVID, because like a lot of it is like, I, it's really fucking irrelevant what I think because I haven't got any power over, over, over it. But I think it is pretty clear that until there is some sort of vaccine, um, large-scale live events are essen- and sports are essentially fucking done. So I think Band-aid fixes until then. It's, it's Band-aid high. fixes. And, like, I, I don't even see, like, if there's no vaccine, this stuff happening next summer because, like, you know, even if a show gets permission to go ahead, if the rates spike, it's going to be, like, pulled down at the last minute. So I, I think, like, the business we're in of making money by putting large amounts of people in places, like, we're waiting for the vaccine. And whilst, like... I don't exactly love a potentially rushed out, somewhat bodged job vaccine. Um, even though I am pro vaccination, like I want to get back yeah. to work. So I'm like, bring it on! I'll like front of the line, give me the fucking thing. I think it's like we've got to create a new category where it's a it's a micro festival. Maybe it's 200 people or 500 people, and it's glamping and there's significant space and it's you're not going to recreate the same experience. So might as well embrace. Uh, the, the restrictions of a new way of enjoying the music. Right. What I do think, I, I will say one thing that gave me real hope, and it's a strange thing to say like I got hope, was uh, the, the massive protest that, that sort of occurred. And I, I know some are still going on now. And because I was genuinely nervous back in March or April that we were essentially going through this like fundamental cultural change whereby people even when COVID was no longer such a threat, people would be so nervous about other people and germs that like we would just see this cultural change whereby the era of mass events and being close to other people in large numbers was simply done. And, you know, when the big protests happened in Los Angeles, I remember reading Twitter the night before, um, reading about people that were going to the protest at, um, forget what park it was but um one of the one of the big parks in um in, in west hollywood near, near the grove and reading people that were, they were going it literally felt like reading a timeline of people that were going to coachella so like what are people wearing for the protests what are the most appropriate clothes um can anyone help me making a sign you know anybody driving from palmdale could like use a lift over there and what i realized was that like for a lot of the kids and the younger people going to to the protests they just have this in, inherent desire to gather in large numbers. And because everything else has been banned, church, sports, music. Maybe the protest was, Yeah, the process was where they got to, kind of got to do that. So, you know, I feel pretty good that when the powers that be allow it, the people will come back because that was my, my initial concern. But um, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just a waiting game. Are you just going to continue to do your stream? And, and what was the, the platform you were using? You're, you're selling so we, uh, we, we used a, a platform called Tixer. And I was pretty early. And I think, like, historically, I'm, I'm sort of, like, being proven to be right now. But um, 
So I just um, so yeah. Um, by essentially, we use a platform called Texa, and everybody else at that point um, was doing like charity streams and charity gigs and stuff. And I kind of immediately saw this and was like, "Listen, our whole industry is totally fucked." You guys to think we're going to be back touring in like May, this is bonkers. Like we're in like the biggest shutdown we've seen in our lifetimes. There is no way we're going to be doing back gigs in, in, in May and June. And in my opinion, that's not the time for charity. The, like when half of your industry is out of fucking work, like you should be supporting your industry and people that, 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 that need cash. So I was like, no, I'm not doing fucking charity. Like we're going to do streams. We're going to make them amazing. We're going to have fantastic production, which should be better than what pretty much anybody else is doing. But, and we're going to make an amazing experience, but it's going to cost money. So we did it on Tixer. Um, and we, I think the first one we did was $10. The second one we did was $15. Each one sold, I think, between sort of two or two and 3,000 tickets. And I felt pretty good that we were able to create work for a shitload of different people at the ticketing company, the guy that provided the lasers, the people that did our production, um, the driver that drove the lasers from like Vegas to here. You know, on each show, there was like 15 to 20 people that sort of made a living wage from that show without even thinking about the people that I was able to keep on the payroll because I also had had some money. And, you know, I again, like I'm so, so fortunate to have this amazing fan base, but like 90 nine percent of people pretty much got that and understood it and then there was a few that said oh fuck you why are you not doing it for fucking charity and i was like well yeah i don't finish the time now i finish the time to look after my industry and people forget that there are people who work behind the scenes in the music business and they are fucked like they don't you know, have a brand they don't have a brand they don't like i get to sell merch and i get to make some money from spotify and yeah like i'm still making 10 percent of what i was last year but i'm all right um, and also DJs have traditionally been, you know, somewhat well-paid, at least if you're in the higher echelons. But there are people like tour managers, production managers, people that run the lights, people that work the venues that, you know, lived month to month and are totally, totally fucked, like on the verge of like losing their houses and stuff. And, I, and I've talked and tried to help out all these people. And when you talk to these, these, um, these men and women in these positions, they don't want fucking charity. They want to work. They want, like, they don't want fucking handouts because, like, yeah, sure, like, there's handouts and stuff coming from the state, but they don't want that. They want to do their jobs and have their heads held high. And the fact that we were able to, you know, charge for a show and create work for these people, which gave them, like, you know, pride to be back doing what they, you know, their their life's work was, uh, felt, felt pretty good. So, yeah, if we do more streams, it'll be a pay-per-view. And we did a pay-per-view type thing. And we all, and by the way, we also did... Um, of, after the, the big protest, it, it didn't feel right to be doing any kind of paid streams. And we, we did do one charity stream then, but it was donation. I didn't, it was like, if you enjoyed it, here are some charities um, that are like, by donate to them or, or, or something else. But if we do feature streams, it'll be paid, like, you know, 10, 10 15 bucks a ticket, that, that, that kind of deal. But I, I'm more interested in finding ways to do stuff in real life. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree though with the charities because it feels too diffuse. Like, where's the accountability? Is it being put to work? Uh, is it just being funneled into administrative costs for a charity? And then there's tons, there's so many different charities. Like, is it just spreading everything out and then nothing? It's like a mile wide and an inch deep. Like, right. It's getting and, done. 
Right. Whereas like when you charge and you give the money back to your own industry, you're fucking give you're buying it's somebody's rent for the night for the month, right? Like you're making real differences. But you know, I I made and I've seen like a lot of this, like where people have said to me, like, you know, would you like to play our club night? All profits go all profits go like all profits go to charity. And I'm like, like, listen, do you have any fucking idea how difficult it is to make money on a club night? Like right. I don't want to be part of this thing where you guys like fucking hire a venue and pay all the money for promotion and you fucking spend, you know, 20 grand putting the show on and then you have 20 grand of expenses with like, you know, production and venue hire and all that shit. So charity gets nothing, but you've just become a promoter. Sorry. Not yeah. <laughs> like I, and, and by the way, like when times are good, I do an awful lot for charity. Like we've, you know, we've done individual fundraisers, where we sort of made like 15, 20 grand in one night. I think we did one for the Vancouver Food, uh, Greater Food Bank. That that was the last one we did. Um, you know, even in the last year, like I supported stuff like, you know, Australian wildfires and um, Rooks had a fundraiser for his parents, like, you know, donated to that. Yeah. And like whenever somebody, but I'm usually like whenever somebody I know got something personal going on, like they're, you know, um, running a marathon for cancer or something I'll, I'll, I'll support in like a pretty generous way i don't talk about it like it's not like i, I never never ever mention like that i, that I do this shit because it's just like not why i do it but again like i kind of explain to people listen like when times are good i'll i'll kind of do my bit but like right now it's you know it's my own industry that i'm looking out for i think if you can do it locally first you know i'd almost rather go out there and help in person rather than just sending money, you know, help with time, donate time and actions rather than be like, let's just send a check and it'll just go into the ether. Goes into the ether. It, 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 exactly. Um, and, but, you know, and some of that is all right. I mean, like with, like we give my kids like pocket money and like their pocket money either goes into like a, see if they, it goes into one of three pots and they get to choose. It's either like save, spend or, or donate. So they already have it in their heads that they're fortunate because they have this pot of money that they're going to donate. And um, our, what we're going to do sometime this week is they're both going to pick sort of kids to sponsor in sort of a, like a, de, like a developing, developing nation, um, which is where their kind of like donate pot, pot will go to. So I think it does have, it, it definitely does have value, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, obviously like I, I was expecting to take a lot of stick in the end. It really wasn't too bad, but internet in 2020 a lot of lot of angry people <laughs> cool man well i don't take up too much of your time i know you got you got kids and man there's less time with kids i only have one baby and it's it's the whole day <laughs> so yeah it get, as they get older you, you reclaim a little bit more time back but it's uh yeah it's 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 full on intense so books coming up soon uh lots of new music and uh in the album sounds amazing it was really fun doing that remix for you so yeah your remix yeah. is so sick man i'm really really excited to get out yeah i'm pumped that vocal it was i had to make sure i didn't mess it up it was just so good so well the thing, i knew that was never going to be an issue with you because like i say you're one of the best out there for vocals and and i'm sure you're the same when people are remixing your stuff often my feedback will be the treatment of the vocal. I'm like, yeah, they've like completely broken it. Whereas like, you know, with you, you I, I just knew sort of instinctively, you'd know the right, um, how, how, how to treat a vocal well. Nice. I feel like remixers will always put it on the two instead of the one. They'll change the timing because they don't know it. Like if they just have the stem. Uh, yeah, I'm very funny about people 
change like obviously changing the timing is is a disaster that always has to be fixed but and also some people like i don't particularly care for people changing the chords too much either like sometimes like a little chord change here and there can like lift things but when somebody puts a completely chord different chord pattern behind it it's always hard for me because on one level i won't let remixes do their thing but on another i'm like well like that chord pattern was better i probably would have thought of it when i was writing the song Chord voicings are everything. Yeah, if it's, it's it's funny. It's like, where did that come from in the creative process? Exactly. But it's also why, like, it, with the songs I love to remix myself is, if I can hear the top line is good, but they haven't quite seen how the chord voicing should sit, and usually it's actually a simplification of things need rather than making the chords more complex. I'm like, I'll often listen and go, wow, like, great vocal, but there was a way simpler chord pattern they could have put under it that would have made that vocal sing a lot more and that that's where like i'll see if there's potential for me to to make a positive change i like that quote simplify to amplify yeah exactly i i think like we often overcomplicate electronic music production and usually the most simple route is the is, is the superior one yeah awesome man well thanks for taking the time i really appreciate this is excellent so great chat dude yeah i really appreciate it man All right, so there you have it, my interview with Gareth Emery. Had a great time talking with Gareth. Uh, He's been a good friend over the years and recently did some remixes for me, so we like to do remix swaps every now and then. It's great to hear about his creative process and his approach to making music, uh, how he divides up his process with Ashley Walbridge and how they divide the labor of the whole creative process. So cool to hear that. Uh, Great to hear what he's doing next and how he really puts his own events together, really bootstraps it, does his own festivals, does his own shows. So keep an eye on Gareth and where he goes next. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more.